0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swartz.
1: And my name is John Keeley. This is the podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on Station KALA. Our guest for the 367th show is Dr. Lauren Davis. Professor of Anthropology and Executive Director of Keystone Archaeological Research Fund, who will be talking to us about early human history of the Northwest Coast. Our history buff for today's show is Terry Toppler. Terry, the floor is yours.
0: Okay, thank you. Yes, Dr. Davis, you mentioned earlier about the West Idaho site um, that goes back 16,000 years ago and how spur points were found there. So I'm curious, um, have you found... Any other surprising discoveries uh, to date that have changed or maybe strengthened your thinking about early human history in North America?
2: Yeah. So one of the questions that you know, we often have about early hunting and gathering peoples in the Americas is, you know, to what degree did they interact with extinct animals? And in the Pacific Northwest where I work, uh, where Idaho is, we, we don't have a lot of evidence Uh, that we can point to that shows that people hunted uh, or let's say even ate and processed these different animals. There's evidence from other sites, of course, in the United States. Um, There's some very famous ones in the Plains and the American Southwest and other places. But um, in our area, we just don't have a lot of evidence for that. So we were really surprised when we excavated at the Cooper's Ferry site to find a piece of a molar of an extinct horse. And we also found some large pieces of bone that, because our site is out in the open, it's not in a cave where it can be protected. Bone doesn't tend to preserve very well, but because these pieces were probably originally pretty large, they um, preserved mostly. But I think that the collection of all those things is probably showing us that someone hunted a horse successfully, brought it back to the site, butchered it, and probably ate it. Because we also found it in association with some shallow pits and a fire hearth. So those things all to go together, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to make the argument that people were interacting with extinct animals, at least at this place in this time in Idaho.
0: Okay. Um go ahead, Jay. Warren, I'm I'm interested in you used the, the phrase that you know, at that Cooper's very site that people had either been coming back or maybe even um, had, had established some sort of a permanent residence like a village. Can you talk to us a little bit about what kinds of evidence you would look for that, that tells you that the site was occupied um, over, a, a, over a period of time as opposed to sort of a, a one-hit kind of we're here for the season and moving on?
2: Right. So the Coopers Ferry site is, as we call it, a stratified site. So what it means is there are different layers of sediment that represent sort of the accumulation of geologic material through time. And in these different layers of sediment, we have artifacts and pieces of bone and sometimes hearths and things like this, evidence of people being there. And they would visit the site, they would do their activities, and then they would leave. And it could be that they had depleted the hunting in the area, or it was a seasonal occupation and things got too warm or too cold and they went somewhere else. And when they left, they left behind a bunch of objects for us to find, and these got buried. So the lowest deposits at the Cooper's Ferry site are actually comprised of windblown glacial dust. Just like you have where you're at, we have a lot of loose soils, so fine dust soils in the Salmon River Canyon in western Idaho. So this very gently rains down buries everything, covers it up, and then eventually people come back again, and they live on the site, they do their activities, leave behind things, and then they leave, and then those get buried as well. If you do that sort of over and over and over again for, let's say, thousands and thousands of years, you get this sort of layer cake of different periods of occupation that you can get ages from by using radiocarbon dating. You can figure out what's the earliest what's the next one and the next one, and so on. And then you can piece together this sort of history of how people used the site, what they were doing, what their lives were like, and so on.
1: Okay. I'm uh, Part of the show is relevant or irrelevant, so I'm going to ask you how something became irrelevant. When I was a kid, of course, when we were taught being taught the traditional, uh, as you're talking, land bridge between um, the two continents, there was also the theory out there by the, um, the anthologist Thor Hitterall saying that no, that uh, people crossed uh, Polynesian tribes and crossed the Pacific, and that has been kind of thrown out, or I haven't heard much about it, and I mean, I'm 54, and when I was a kid, that was kind of a struggle between the two arguments, so this was in the 70s. If, if you could tell our listeners uh, pretty much, why is that theory debunked now? And does anyone even believe that anymore?
2: So, the way you would want to measure an idea like that to test it as a hypothesis, you need to find evidence that kind of helps you either. Support it. You can think about it negatively. So, how can I disprove that idea? How can I disprove the idea that people didn't come across, you know, the, the lower latitudes from Polynesia? and land, let's say, first in South America. Well, the evidence that we get from the genetic record of ancient skeletons shows us that you can basically trace ancestry of shared genetic heritage to Northeast Asia. So the peoples of uh, essentially Siberia, China, Mongolia, you know, the Japanese islands, Koreas, and all this, they have genetic history that looks a lot more like deeper ancestry of the new world than Polynesia does. So Polynesians don't really show up in terms of having a deep genetic history with the Americas. Um, If they had continued their migrations later in time and being able to move all the way across to the Americas, that may have changed. But, um, you know, most of the South Pacific islands, for example, are not settled until quite late you know, only let's say a few thousand years ago. I mean, from an archaeology point of view, that's not that much. But no. um you know, but it's it's not the same kind of timing as you would need to explain how the Americas got peopled.
1: Mm-hmm. So DNA kind of threw that argument out, what you're saying.
2: It definitely <laughs> does. And I mean the DNA record will change pretty rapidly in terms of how we interpret it once you discover new skeletons, let's say. And it's it's a it's a field that um Again, the models of interpretation are based on not that many data points. You know, let's say, you know, something closer to a dozen than closer to 20, you know, specimens. So if you add another one, it can really change things. So it's a dynamic field. Um, We can also look at the artifacts themselves. Again, this is the shared sort of mental idea, the constructs that people have about how to take raw materials and turn them into useful tools. Those are teachable ideas. You can think of them almost like computer codes that people teach each other and how to do things. How artifacts look in the Americas look a lot more like Northeast Asia early on than they do in Polynesia. So, so if people did come across from Polynesia and settle in the Americas, they didn't leave behind any genetic evidence, and they really didn't leave behind any sort of what we call material culture ideas. So it's just not a, a great explanation. Okay, thank you. Yes,
0: uh, Dr. Davis, I'd like to talk about now future exploration. You mentioned how coastlines have changed over thousands of years, and so now it's challenging to find sites, particularly on the continental shelf. So what plans are there to investigate uh, those areas, and how can that be done?
2: So there's a couple ways to do it. We uh, have been working from um, ships where essentially we go out and we map what the coastline, ancient coastlines and shorelines looked like uh, at lower sea level positions. So again, um, during the last ice age, so much water was taken out of the ocean that it drew the world's oceans down. We had extra coastline around the Americas. People would have lived on this coastline and they would have left sites behind, we assume. But as sea level came up, it submerged it. It's hard to work with. So you can try to do it from the water side, that is, you know, from ships and when we do this, we actually drop cores down, so we a six-meter-long you know, metal tube with a vibrating motor on the top, and it pushes it down into the seafloor, sort of like you could push a straw into a milkshake. And then you winch it back up to the surface of the ship and unload it and see if you found anything inside. And that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to try to find areas along the modern coastline that are above sea level that would have been what we call inland attractions. Like things that would draw people in, and so I work also in northwestern Mexico, in Baja California, on an island called Cedros Island, and Cedros Island is literally a desert island, and so one of the things that's a limiting factor there is water, fresh water for drinking, and what we see is that in the past, during the before twelve thousand years ago, people are marching their food from an ancient coastline that's now submerged. They're walking it inland and sitting around springs. And the reason for this is that eight pounds of water is a gallon. And that might get you a day you know, worth of hydration. Eight pounds of food can last more than a day. So the solution is basically bring the food to the water, not the other way around. And mm-hmm. that's what people are doing. And so we found a whole bunch of early sites on this island near these springs above sea level. And in these sites, we, find, um, we found about 36 of these now Uh, They are single-piece shell hooks made out of abalone and mussel shell. And some of them are, for your fishermen that are listening, like 16-gauge fish hooks. And these kinds of fish hooks are used today, for example. That size is used to take sharks or take really big game fish like marlin and so on. And then we've also found the bones of these fishes that they're catching. And some of them include really, really big fishes that are about the size of people or bigger. So, mm-hmm. so this is another way for us to get to asking questions about how people are interacting with the ocean. We just have to sort of crack the code of where these sites of the right age might be held in the landscape and for what reason. Thank you.
0: Um, Lawrence, so I'm going to ask you to, to speculate a little bit, the, the meanest thing to do to any scientist. Um so, as you are thinking about new theories, uh lay out what you think is the most promising theory to sort of explain how um migration takes place and and really the time frames that it's that it's working in as it's works its way down uh to uh, as John asked earlier uh, all the way down to south america what what seems to be your idea of where this is headed?
2: Well, if we look at the data as it exists right now, all the evidence that we know about the timing of uh, when people are in the Americas, and also what their sort of ideas, as set in the form of artifacts, what those ideas sort of look like, the for us the most parsimonious explanation, the simplest, most elegant explanation, is that people likely came into the Americas along the coast. So basically moving along the northern Pacific Rim, and they probably left a place that's close to the area of what is now called the Russian Far East and and Japan. So it's sort of in the neighborhood of the Japanese islands. And these people, at the end of the last ice age, before 16,000 years ago, likely left. And they began this epic migration by walking and paddling boats, likely, along the northern Pacific Rim, They could have skirted along glaciers in Alaska and British Columbia that were extending out and grounding on the continental shelf. These would have been big obstructions for walking, but they could paddle around them. And in the process of doing this, they could stay close to these really productive ecosystems. So they had the marine ecosystem that wasn't affected the same way as the terrestrial ecosystem was by ice. Um, And they could also use areas that were not glaciated. So we can refer to these as refugia. So these little pockets, and some of them aren't that little, some of them are bigger than probably, you know, U.S., you know, northeastern states that are areas that didn't receive ice at certain times or they may have received them earlier and they weren't glaciated by the time people came down. And as they worked their way south of the ice, they would have come to the first off-ramp, you could think of it, or the first left-hand turn they could take away from the ice and that is the mouth of the Columbia River. So the Columbia River at this point sort it, of is a rough boundary for the edge of the extent of continental ice sheets. So they could work their way up the continent or up the Columbia and if they kept going they would end up at the Cooper's Ferry site. So what we may be seeing is the end product of people migrating down, staying with the things that are comfortable to them, and that's waterways, coastlines, things like this, aquatic environments. And they just simply spread throughout these different basins. And they likely kept on going down the coastline in different places, and eventually they get to South America. This early site we mentioned uh, before, the Monte Verde site, is not that far away from the coast in Chile. And it shows people using marine ecosystem stuff. There's, you know, seaweeds and things like this that they bring inland. And so we think that that's probably the way it likely happened. And then later on, people could have tackled the bigger challenge of actually trying to figure out how to live in these very diverse ecosystems that are part of the interior areas of our American continents. So by staying along the coast, that ecosystem is more or less, you know, variations on a theme. It's not the same as being able to have to walk through the the heart of the Americas, you know, from North America, Central America, South America, to conquer all those different ecosystems and figure out what plants are going to kill you and what won't. I mean, that's got to be really hard, and it might have taken a lot longer. So the coast could have been a faster way to do it and perhaps even an easier way. So that's sort of what we're thinking about now. Yeah, that's sort of our grand speculation of how it may have all happened.
0: Outstanding. Well, we would like to thank our guest for this 367th show, Dr. Lauren Davis, Professor of Anthropology and Executive Director of the Keystone Archaeological Research Fund, who talked to us about early human history of the North East, Northwest Coast. The history buff for today's show was Terry Toppler. You can listen to Y as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KLA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9:30 PM. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put H 2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, all one word, in the search. Click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. ROI is recorded at Station KALA, St. Ambrose University.